This is the Icon Podcast, a community where we're doing our doggone best to be trained readers, reflecting Jesus. I'm Michael Burns. You'll notice this voice is a little bit different than the one that you might be used to starting it out. I'm with Jason Alexander today, and Jason Gianna is out today. She is off doing what? She's doing NBA things, we'll say. And so she she dumped us for the week. Yeah. Well, it was my fault, actually, because I, I had to reschedule, and and she couldn't do it on the fly. So it was my fault. Well, I wouldn't, wouldn't say that, though. We had a hard time scheduling it this week because I'm yeah. heading oh, to that's San true. Diego. So I initially had to reschedule. Right. That's right. That's right. Then okay. we had a time, and then... You couldn't do that time, and so yep. we just decided to go uh, without our yep. fearless host, Gianna, today. But, Jason, I have some news for you. Okay. I have I have found an event that you might want to sign up for. It is taking place February 24th, 2024, the first annual Florida Man Games. Okay. That sounds now, like something I want to be a part of. Now, do you know what the reference is to Florida man? No, I don't think okay. so. So there's a there's a kind of a if you go on Twitter and other forms of social media, there's become almost this I don't know if you call it a thread or a theme of there's some crazy stuff that happens in Florida, right? People committing like bizarre crimes, trying to evade police and things like that. So it's kind of based on that. And the organizers call this the most insane athletic showdown on earth. And it is going to be, it it will include the evading arrest obstacle course in which contestants can jump over fences run through yards while being chased by real off-duty police officers. There will also be a Category 5 cash grab where participants try to grasp as much money as they can in a wind-blowing booth. Uh, There will also be weaponized pool noodle mud doodle. I'm sorry, weaponized pool noodle mud duel and beer belly wrestling. Wow. And I saw this and I thought, this is perfect for Jason. Yeah, I've got some experience running from the police. I could probably <laughs> compete. You can channel your inner northern yeah. Wisconsin <laughs> roots. Yeah. Oh, well, my goodness. That is amazing. I, it's funny that they're actually organizing that. Don't you yeah. kind of want to go, though? Just yeah, to not see really. who competes? <laughs> no? Yeah. Where where is it in Florida? Um, that's a good question. Where is it in Florida? Let me see if it says um, specifically. Uh, I don't I don't remember it saying. You have to go and sign up, I guess, to find okay. out where it is. It doesn't say that in the article, but I feel like I don't know why I feel like. Jacksonville would be a good place for that or something. That that feels very Florida. Yes, somewhere. Yeah, that does feel like real Florida. Yeah, kind of sw- like it can't be swampy almost kind of. Yeah, there, like, like Miami's yeah. too. Yeah, Miami's. That's not the right vibe for Miami. I was going to say, I always think, of course, of Orlando when I think of Florida because of like Disney World. And yeah, but that's so touristy. Too, I know it. It's I not, know you got to get out in the sort of swampy area. Oh, dude, my my mom used to live in a town like by Fort Myers, and we would go down there for vacation in the winters, and it was like paradise in the winter down there. Oh, I bet that so. Is if nice. it's in the, you know, maybe in the summer, I I don't know. It's yeah, it gets pretty hot there too. I was going to say that might be a nice place to go, but that's probably even more warm than where I live. So as we record this today, Jason, it is Halloween. Are you doing anything right. special for Halloween? Uh, we've been doing, there's been like all kinds of events with our daughter. And, you know, my wife is like the 
she, I don't know. She's like organizes the PTA for my daughter's school. So there's been a bunch of stuff like trunk or treats this morning at like six in the morning. There was a parade. It's like hundreds cool. of kids there. Um, and then tonight again, there's some other deal at one of the parks and yeah, it's like nonstop. Yeah. Parties. Oh, and I, it's fun. I miss a lot about having younger kids, but not necessarily yeah. that stuff. I but, not not that stuff. No, not not with Halloween and looking at all the costumes and yeah, I could take it or leave it. But I I am I I want to be the guy in the neighborhood that you know kids if they when they get older and they're like, hey, let's go egg somebody's house. That it's not going to be my house. So yeah. we're handing out full-size candy bars today. Yeah, that's a and good And basically move. trying to bribe the the love from the children so that they, like, you know, don't mess with that house. They've always right. given us good stuff. Right. Um, That'll do it. No, trick-or-treating for me now because our boys are older and they're, you know, off on their own right now. Uh, trick-or-treating for me is just hand out the candy, pretend that I think the kids' costumes are cute, and you know, kind of gush over it, and then move on and get into November. Right. I mean, isn't today is Reformation Day as well, right? Or that was last Sunday, I suppose. But that's the that's the real point of celebration for you this time of year. <laughs> is it? Uh, <laughs> I was not even aware of when that day was. Oh yeah, yeah. But you know what a big fan I am of the reformers. So yep. there you go. I do. Um, well, Jason, we are going to continue in Revelation Day. We're kind of winding down. We're, we're nearing the end here. And today, we initially, th- there was going to be one episode on dispensationalism. It is now stretched into three. Uh, right. One, because we just had a lot to talk about and we got chatting and thought we should go into it more. And then two, because our last episode, my Wi-Fi went so berserk while we were recording. And oh, we just that's right. We, we didn't have time to re-record the episode and we just couldn't. Uh, by the end, I couldn't even really get on. And so we kind of ended somewhat abruptly. And right. need to finish up our talk today. But you'll notice to this point, knock on wood, my connection is has been flawless. And it that's has, because you're right. I, I was not able to get the Wi-Fi fixed yet, but I broke down and I went and got an Ethernet cable. And wow. uh, I don't have an outlet for the Ethernet in my office. Yeah, so I've got like this 50-foot cable running from right. the Wi-Fi tower across the steps into my office, and it's it's working. So, did you have to get an adapter for that for your computer? Do, you, do computers I, even have I did have, have that? to get an adapter. So That's I got what an Ethernet cable and then an adapter that okay. goes Ethernet to USB. But wow. it is working to this yeah, point quality. It, so. it, it's the best way to get internet, isn't it? Yeah. yeah I've, I think I'm kind of hooked now. Whenever I'm yeah. doing like this, like why mess with Wi-Fi, I will just Ethernet. And it's not like people haven't suggested that to me before. But, Jason, I am stubborn. And yeah. I don't like to do things that I haven't done before or don't know really well. So I just thought, eh, that seems unnecessary. Right. But now I kind of like it because I was forced into it. Yep. Sounds familiar. It does. That's kind of the story of my life. Like there's yeah. things, uh, whether it's food or places I don't want to go. And then my wife kind of gets me to go or to eat things. And then I'm like, oh, I, I like that. Do you know I did not eat guacamole until I was probably 40? Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I just wouldn't I, eat it. I was like, oh, it's green. and it's I still don't eat that. guacamole. Oh, that's a shame. Because guacamole is amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's Justine eats, uh, you know, I don't know how many avocado sheets, my wife, every day. I don't know. There's something about the avocado. I'm just not a fan. I will yeah, eat them, and I know they're good for different. you. Guacamole is different than avocado straight, though. Yeah. You got to get the spices in there. 
Yeah. Well, they make a lot of it here where I live. It's at like every function. That makes sense. uh, Well, you've got to, you've got to change your ways. Maybe. All right. So let's just do this. When we, where we were last time, we were discussing kind of three big impacts of dispensationalism. And um, that they've, you know, that it's had over time. And we were discussing the second one. Well, the first two, which are kind of go together a little bit. But basically, we were on on the discussion of dispensationalism leads us into a very narrow view of mission, which is evacuation. And then away from the idea of uh, justice that we find in the Bible, like bringing justice. And I know we were discussing some of um, the more modern emphasis on the the Great Commission as the... Mm -hmm. Oh, uh, right. As the, I don't even want to say the mountaintop, as the sum total of Christian mission. Right, right. Kind of ignoring what Matthew actually does, which is go make disciples, but that sits on the mountain of Matthew 25, whatever you do for the least of these, and Mm -hmm. the Sermon on the Mount, and all of the other things, you know, loving enemies and all that stuff that he has talked about in Matthew. That so, So it's almost as if, this is the way I've worded it, Jason. At the end of uh, what is called the Great Commission, he says, go make disciples uh, of all nations, teaching them and all of that. And then he's, but before that, it says that he has all authority, right? Right. So he has all authority, therefore go and make disciples. And that if you follow that word thread in Matthew, which I think is absolutely what Matthew intends us to do. It leads us on a journey of, well, what kind of disciples? Where Let's go back and follow this theme of authority, that word authority in Matthew. And we see it very clearly that that points us back to the Sermon on the Mount, because that ends with they were amazed that he was one who had authority. And then Matthew spends like three chapters after the Sermon on the Mount telling one story after the other about the authority of Jesus. And he is the one with authority. Look at mm-hmm. him have authority and and he has the right to lay out this new vision for the world and so um big fan of evangelism then in that sense spreading the new creation but dispensationalism reduced it to in an individualized religious experience that you have in your head and you referred to that with Char- Charles Taylor's idea as excarnation where instead Mm -hmm. of incarnation, we move it from the body to just, uh, we reduce Christianity and evangelism to something in the head. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where we left off, and then we were going to move on to our third element. But before we do, Jason, anything you want to add to that discussion? No, I remember that now. And what, what was number three? Remind me. So number three is the, the Israel. Right. Okay. Okay. So are you ready to go to that one? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So um, I I suppose I need to preface this and say that this discussion here doesn't directly uh, come from any particular view of the contemporary issue, which is certainly in the news once again these days with the secular nation of Israel and people of Palestine and the organization known as Hamas, which is now labeled, and it seems rightfully so, as a terrorist organization. We're not getting into that. But what we're getting into, perhaps, is how dispensationalism um, has contributed to make that issue more complex. Dispensationalism didn't didn't cause that issue. We're not even necessarily going to try to pull apart that issue. The more I study that issue, the more I realize, like, good night, it is complex. 
it mm-hmm. it has roots going <laughs> back to deep biblical times and then I think even more of the problem today stems from colonialism and some of the double dealing that the British Empire did in the 19th century and in world, uh, or rather the early 20th century, World War One, and just created a mess over there where people had been living in peace for quite a long time. And it it's created the issues we have today. But dispensationalism has made that issue more complex with this idea of dual covenant, where uh, God's promises to Israel are read very literalistically as though they, they apply to any nation calling itself Israel at any time, and they will be fulfilled exactly literally and they kind of skip over the New Testament and the idea that those promises are uh, expanded and, uh, you know, fulfilled to a degree, but expanded, uh, applied through Jesus now as, as the true Israel. And so the, the promises aren't broken. They're simply, uh, and this is part of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 9, they are pass to the faithful Israelite who is Jesus, and now those promises are being fulfilled even greater in Christ. But this idea creates two covenant people. There is the nation of Israel and the church. And as we've talked about, the nation of Israel is the spiritual-focused covenant. The church is the physical-focused covenant. But it, it, um, dispensationalism says that it is our duty to mandate and support the secular nation of Israel, which is not in really any way, shape, or form except name and geographic location connected to what we see in the Old Testament, the, the covenant people of Israel. It's, it's not the same thing. They simply use the same name um, to call themselves that. But it, it, there's a number of problems uh, with that view. And what it's created is, is dispensationalism gets mixed with Christian nationalism and becomes particularly problematic because now we have Americans going into a very complex situation and saying, well, no matter what happens, we're siding with Israel because that's what the Bible tells us to do. And so instead of helping two groups of people resolve they're very complex problems. We've largely inappropriately taken a side without question and thrown fuel into a very dangerous fire. So there's there's more I could say there about the the weakness of that biblical view of dispensationalism, that view of Israel. But Jason, what do you want to say to that? Uh, you know, I I I'm I don't have a lot to add to that, um, mostly because it's it's so, like you you suggested, it's just so complicated. Um, uh, it's it's troubling. Um, uh, the yeah, the the blending of of church and nation in our country, uh, which is no doubt a product of. Uh, or at least connected to dispensationalism, just makes this such a, I don't know, just a, a place of misunderstanding. Um, right. But it's, yeah, I, you know, it's, this is, this is, uh, yeah, I don't want, know if I want to say more than that, honestly. Um, yeah. I do, yeah, it's it's so it's so yeah, I mean I, I work with a woman whose family um is from Palestine and lost everything in, in the nineteen forties, you know, with the with uh, the creation of the state of Israel. And so like, you know, you, you, you hear the, the pain on that side and then you um and then you see this um in the on the the Christian, and I, I think I want to put that in quotes, 
the quote Christian side of things. And it's like, well, the Bible tells us that that was God's will. And it's, it's just hard to, um, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to reconcile all of that. So I, I, I love your point that this is really complicated and dispensationalism doesn't teach us to be prayerful peace, peacemakers, or maybe just to stay out of it altogether. I don't know, but to, to be prayerful in this place of pain, but instead it rallies us to a side um, in a way that's pretty myopic. Yes. And what it does, what dispensationalism has encouraged in the 20th and 21st century is to take a particular interpretive approach to the Bible and utilize that to trump peacemaking, to trump human rights, to trump human law. Like, no, we don't need to do any of that because all we need to know is Israel is God's people. And so we've got to be on their side. But that's an interpretive approach. That's not necessarily, and again, this is not to take Israel's side or be against Israel or justify terrorism or any of that. We're talking about the theological road that enters into this fray. But what's what's interesting, and a lot of people don't realize this, and I know you know this, Jason, because you've been over to Israel, as have I, that there are more Palestinian Christians than there are Israeli Christians. And I'm not saying that to say, well, then we should be on their side, but I'm saying um, people, because of this interpretive approach, have said, well, we're just going to back the nation of Israel with our nationalistic power no matter what, and not considering that a lot of these things impact Christian brothers and sisters in Palestine in in very heartbreaking, terrible ways. And in dispensationalism, the Palestinians are basically viewed as an obstacle to the second coming of Christ. We need to get them out because we can't rebuild the temple that they believe has to be rebuilt because of the way they read Revelation and all of that. And so the Bible becomes weaponized to justify secular Israel for nationalist purposes. But it has nothing really to do with, I think, how we are supposed to read and understand Scripture. And the idea of having two covenants is deeply problematic for me, uh, because now you have a people who are saved and God's people without specifically having to believe in Christ. They, they are part of the covenant people because they are the nation of Israel. Um, and Jesus talks about this in John 8, like, hey, you know, don't think that just because you're physical descendants of Abraham, you're going to be considered part of God's people. And that that's the whole argument he has in John 8. And the Jewish leaders get very worked up about that and are ready to kill Jesus because of that. Um, so there's, there's a lot of issues there that I think it's just wise for Christians to step back. We're not going to try to answer all of those really muddy and complicated issues today, but simply to say, uh, dispensationalism has negatively impacted that discussion because it, it has put its thumb on the scale, right? So to speak. And and you know just to 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 note too that some reactions <clears throat> to dispensationalism border on anti-Semitic and a lack of um, understanding the the complexities and nuances of a discussion about. Um, about Israel and in, in Scripture, this is dispensationalism. Isn't a careful thought through evaluation of, like, say, Romans or something like that, um, or um, or 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 dealing with the thoroughly Jewish context in which the New Testament emerges. Um, th- this is a more nationalistic kind of reading than a um, than a. Uh, it, it, it's more replete with certitude than I'm comfortable with when, when it comes to the discussion of, of Israel. Um, dispensationalism offers a kind of certitude that just makes everything really neat and tidy, but it's all, it all ends up being um, along the lines of nation and, and mostly 
military, right? I mean, rather than a careful handling of um, what is. um, Because I mean, and and you know this now that uh, the the there there is of course many um, many Christians in the West discovering the Jewish roots of the New Testament and realizing that a whole world has been severed from our interpretive lens and um an overreaction to dispensationalism could saw off the tree we're sitting on um uh, and so i think it's important to make that distinction that we're not we're not wading through um this discussion in a way that's delicate we're talking about templates that are put over the bible that lead us to nations rather than a, a careful thought through discussion about the covenant in scripture that I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And let me shift just a little bit here and say one of the, um, one of the real pillars of dispensationalism, of course, and maybe what it's most well known for is the idea of the rapture. And we've, talked about that a number of times here that's the big one in my mind that's the big one in my mind that's well that's that's its centerpiece right but it's it's perhaps um well it's yeah it's very influential that's the, the rapture itself um does not feed into the Israel discussion we just had, but it is kind of the key component to the idea of mission as evacuation. Mm-hmm. And we don't need to worry about issues of people's bodies and, and justice and equality yeah. and those sorts of things. Cause we're just trying to get people off of this earth before God burns it up, balls it up and throws it away. It's the thing I when you use the word dispensationalism, rapture is the first thing that comes to mind. It's the thing I associate most with dispensationalism for some reason. Not for well, some reason. I mean, so. there's good reason. Rightfully yeah. so. That's that's its most. Uh, that's its most pronounced uh, t- teaching, huh? Yes, and that's the one that really sucks people in and sells books and gets people, um, you know, making crazy YouTube videos about when. The rapture is going to happen and the calendarizing and all of that is centered around that. And we have mentioned uh, a couple books before, but I'll mention, mention them again that I think are wonderful. I would recommend specifically on dispensationalism. One is The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism by Daniel yeah. Hummel. That's new. And the other, have Isn't you read that, that yet? That, that's the one that came out this summer, correct? Correct. Correct. Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't read it. It's on. It's on a wish list, but uh, I know. Yeah. About it. It's it's really good. Um, for me, I I couldn't put that book down. It was a page turner. It is. It's a fascinating topic, but I'll just say it's also really well written. Hmm. It's it's really well written. And uh, another book is after dispensationalism: reading the Bible for the end of the world by Brian Irwin. Uh, that one is is good as well. But Jason, I want to talk about a couple of the passages that are central to the idea of rapture and the idea of God giving up on the created order. And so I thought it'd be great to end this episode by chatting about those passages. And one of them, and maybe the most famous one, you know, whether it's one of those whether people have this verse memorized or not it it impacts a lot of what they think it's been really influential in our songs um there there are so many songs we sing that are dispensationally influenced in the last 100 years um what are some of them you know any song that has rapture in it um the word rapture soon and very soon we're going to see the king that's that's a dispensational song um so much of that idea yeah when the role is called up yonder any any like 
yes. I have a ho- I have a an, anything like ho- home in heaven. My um, real home is there. Yeah. Because this world is getting thrown away and that's where we're going. This this all comes from the dispensational worldview. And so in 1 Thessalonians 4:17, Paul has been asked a question and and I think Paul talked probably about being transformed at the resurrection when Christ finally does appear so much that it led some to go, well, what about those who have already died? And so Paul wants to clear that up. And he says, oh, no, 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 they'll be resurrected too. And so he clears that up. And then in verse 17, he says, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, in fairness, Jason, if you read that in English, first blush, what does that look like? We're going up into the sky. We're looks like is. the rapture, right? Yeah. It's here here comes Jesus. Uh we're he's calling us. There's a trumpet call in the previous verse, and we go up and into the clouds and meet him in the air, and we'll live there forever. What's interesting, though, is if we actually, and you don't have to be a scholar to do this, if you just get a simple Bible dictionary or go on Blue Letter Bible and do just a minimum amount of work on what these words or concepts actually conveyed in Scripture, you see that what Paul is saying is virtually the exact opposite. In fact, he was kind of going out of his way to be clear but our English words make it appear differently. And that's where it's important, as Scripture says, to be students of the Word who correctly handle the Word and, and put in the time. And so, for instance, he, he mentions clouds. And maybe you could say something about this, Jason. But that's, a, that's an idea that comes straight from the book of Exodus. This, this image of God coming in a cloud in Exodus 19.9. It says, I am, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud. In Exodus 24.16, the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days. The cloud covered the mountain. And then the Lord calls Moses from within the cloud. So the cloud is a picture of God's presence. What do you want to add to that? Um, I was just looking, isn't, doesn't Mark nine use the image of the cloud as well at the transfiguration Mount? Yes. Yeah. 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 Then a cloud overshadowed them. Um, yeah, well, this is a very, very interesting, uh, thing, thing to look at that, that would warrant its own. I mean, that, you know, this is the, the, um, you know, kind of like the body of God um, throughout much of the Old Testament, in a sense. It's like this cloud, this, um, uh, it's really hard to nail down. And there's a few different ways it's described, but um, there's something about the cloud um, that is protective, perhaps. Um, uh <laughs> Yeah, th- this is really a really cool subject, in my opinion. Um, yeah. Or storms, too. Like, God is often associated with storms. It's a very almost violent image at times when God appears. But I, I think all of that is, yeah, you're right, some of the 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 connection. Um, when God showed up on a on a pretty regular occasion it would be in a cloud or a storm or something like that so i and so it's it's kind of the language used when god breaks into the physical realm but also there's an old testament language of uh god riding on the clouds in judgment yeah yeah right as the cloud rider when he comes in he is coming to confront decreation well, yeah, and, 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 and deal with it. Yeah, and 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 you know, some have even noticed in that language, 
um, you know, the, the high Canaanite god, Ale, uh, who is like the father creator deity, um, and his son, Baal, or Baal, uh, who's most associated with the storm and therefore the fertility and agriculture and, uh, yeah. you know, the, the ability to grow. And so God, God as the image of the cloud rider or connected to the cloud and the weather is a symbol of God's power and luminescence. I, I don't know. Like it's, it's just a really bizarre description. And, and it's, if you think about, you know, the, the, I think it's probably par excellence. The story of God in the cloud would be Sinai. Um, and if you remember in Exodus 24, uh, Moses, Joshua, Aaron, and the 70 elders make their way up. And we notice in the story, like almost like gradations of holiness that we find later in the temple, like spheres of holiness. The elders go a part way up. The leaders go a little bit further. Moses gets to go the furthest. But uh, what's interesting is they go up the mountain part way and they have, they says they eat with God and they all survive. Uh, but they look and they see the bottoms of God's feet. Um, but it, but it's I, I think it's that kind of image being caught up together with God is like Exodus twenty four where they're, they're together with God on the mountain and there there's 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 safety that's almost like counterintuitive. I, I think yeah. the, the image is that God is dangerous um, at, at some level because of His holiness because He's the Creator and yet here they are eating with Him. Uh, underneath him, so to speak. So I think all of that is, it should, I think, like you said, Paul is trying to, I think, uh, um, is the word inculcate awe in the Thessalonian church, like to, to, to evoke wonder and awe of what it will yeah. be like to be in God's presence, which then has practical, uh, practical, but like, contemporary significance it's not just like a pie in the sky one day we'll all get to go float up into heaven but it's evoking all of this like can you imagine what it'd be like to be with god like remember exodus 24 right yeah yes no i think that's exactly it and i think what he's drawing on from the old testament that would have been explained if not initially clear to his original audience but i think what paul is doing there is drawing on the idea, as you said, of one, God's presence. You, that's what the cloud signified. You are being brought into God's presence. But two, the cloud is often associated with judgment. When God is riding on the clouds, there's judgment for those outside the cloud. But those inside the cloud are yeah. that idea you just said of safety. So, so God's people are being brought into God's presence and preserved through that judgment. And then the third element is the cloud always comes this way. The cloud is breaking yeah. God's presence into yes. our realm. Yes. So right. Yeah. I mean, even, yeah. even like if you read, if you read the, um, the story of the tabernacle and then of course the temple, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fair to say like, this is a portable, Mount Sinai. It's very, yeah. very, um, and, and, or, or even more, Mount Sinai is like the Garden of Eden with very similar descriptions. And the, 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 the tabernacle and then the temple become, uh, the location. So you're right, is a descent, the presence of God from the mountain down into the tabernacle. And then, of course, up on the hilltop in in Sinai, and then of course at Pentecost, uh, uh, we get the image of it filling the be the believers. Um, but yeah, you're right; it's a movement from the mountain down to um, a local, right? Like a local habitation. You know, like he takes up residence. Yeah, that's why so that's why the rapture doesn't fit. A rapture reading of this passage doesn't fit because that's the the direction God moves throughout the Bible is not taking people out, but making a home among us. Yes. It goes the wrong direction. It goes the wrong which direction. Which is made even, even more clear as we continue on. So we have, we're caught up in the clouds in God's presence. But then he goes on to say, um, we will meet the Lord 
And that word there, apentesis, is actually a very technical word in the first century usage. Both we see it outside of the Bible and inside the New Testament. That term meat actually uh, just translating apentesis as meat is is misleading because it's a technical term that means you go out, you greet, and you escort someone important back in. That's usually how the word was used. And so we see the same word being used in Matthew 25, where it says, uh, at midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to apentesis him. The virgins were ready, went in with him to the wedding banquet. So they go out, they meet the bridegroom, and then they escort him back in. That's what apentesis meant. You would go out and meet a dignitary or the the star of that show or whatever it was, and then bring them back into the place that you were. It was a sign of respect. You went out and you greeted them and brought them in. Uh, Acts 28, it says, And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming and they traveled as far as the form of Apius and the three taverns to Apentesis us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. And then when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself. And so they went out, they greeted him, and they brought him back in. That's the meaning of that term. So when he says we're in the clouds to meet him, we're brought into his presence to to bring him back. And then the third element is bring him back where? And Paul says, in the air. But that is misleading for us as we read that in English as well, because that that word air doesn't mean sky. It doesn't mean the heavens. It can. Right. It it can, but usually it's the the lower surface atmosphere. It's our space. As um, uh, rather than the higher sky, where you know we see it in Acts twenty-two, where the people are flinging dust into the air, or First Corinthians nine, where Paul says, "I don't fight like a boxer beating the air," and you see similar ideas. Um, Satan, I think, is called the ruler of the air, this space, this this world. Um, and so it's this idea of we're being brought into. So, so here's to, to summarize what he's saying in First Thessalonians four seventeen. I think is Paul is using language that's familiar to the original audience and saying, "Hey, we will be brought into the the glory cloud presence of God. We'll be safe from judgment. We're there with Him." We will go out and greet him and escort him back into our space, into our realm, and he will. We will be with the Lord forever. Right, and and there are historical reconstructions of this same sort of thing happening within uh, cities within the Roman Empire. Correct me if I'm wrong. Right, where you have a very similar. Uh, kind of um, arrival of a of say a Caesar, and yes. and the the company of dignitaries and leaders within the city will go out to meet the the um, the king and lead him back into the city, which his reign of peace afforded, uh, you know, them yes. to build. Uh, his, but that his, visit is his temporary. Wealth. That visit is temporary in Rome, and here Paul says, "We will right. be with the Lord forever." Right, right, right. But but the image, if if that historical like um, event is a thing, if that happened, then the image is consistent that it's the it's going out to meet to bring back in. Right. Instead right, of going exactly. out and leaving leaving town forever, <clears throat> you're just going out to meet to usher back in. It's a royal image, if that's true. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. Now let's turn to Second Peter, because it, here's another one that kind of leads into this way Jeez. of thinking. Yeah. 
Second Peter 3, 10 to 11 says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now that ought to clue us right there. We talked about the day of the Lord. There's that day of the Lord language. Mm-hmm. We've already done a whole episode on that. So you may want to go back and, and listen to that. But that's that idea of when God confronts the decreation of empire, and he always will, it's a day of the Lord. Right. And so this seems to be pointing perhaps to the ultimate day of the Lord when God confronts all that stands against him and tears down his creation. But this is true of any day of the Lord. It says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. So Jesus, uh, Jesus, Jason is Peter here saying that God is going to burn up the whole world one day and throw it away. And our goal is to get evacuated off to the celestial city of heaven. Is that what Peter is saying? It can't be. Well, and I, I forgive me, I wasn't totally paying attention, but did, did you read like the, well, like, don't I, let me interrupt you, Jason. No, no, no. I, I was, I was reading along, you but I didn't, I don't know if I was now. reading ahead of you. Um, did you read where he says, and there shall be a new heaven and a new earth? I didn't read that. You can go ahead and read that. Hang on. I'm having trouble. Uh, Calling this up. Sorry. Second Peter three. Yeah. Okay. Um, the day of the Lord. Okay. Yeah. Look. Uh, yeah. I read 11, uh, 10 and 11. Uh, and so you can read 12 and 13 if you yeah, want. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, uh, okay. Because of this day, the heavens will be burned up and dissolve and the celestial bodies will all melt away in a blaze. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness truly resides. I mean, it's kind of like, all right, so, you know, we talk about God's going to burn it all up or, you know, it's all going to burn and we're going to go to heaven. It's like, well, just read a few, read one more sentence. And he clearly says there'd be a new heavens and a new earth. We're, we're, you know, this is, we come across this in Revelation. Whatever this burning up means, it's not an annihilation of all material uh, because he's going right. to make a new heavens and a new earth. In which, now I'm reading the New English translation, but in which righteousness truly resides. Uh, I mean, dikaiosune is the Greek word there. It's righteousness. Uh, It's uh, a a, a very embodied existence. We're not talking about souls stripped of their flesh to live as ghosts in the stratosphere. We're talking about a renewal project here, judgment and renewal, right? Yeah. It can't, it can't just be like, uh, this can't be a, a, a proof text for uh, thinking that we're just going to be souls and the body doesn't matter. Correct. And I think a, a big clue to that actually comes in verse 11 when he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way. Well, what does that word mean? And whatever it means, we have to go back up to verse 6, where Peter has just used that word, and he's talking about the flood, the deluge at the time of Noah, and he says, by these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. Right. So it clearly can't mean physical annihilation, uh, a, a complete... Overall, that's not what it means. And and let me go through this. I'll try to do this quickly, and then I want to hear your commentary. But so he says the heavens will disappear. And a lot of scholars have made the case that that term disappear should actually be translated as move forward. They will go into their kind of next stage. And then when he refers to the elements, that's the word stoicheia. Mm-hmm. And stoicheia is, you know, there's there's definitely a theological discussion over 
the meaning of stoicheia, but I think more and more it's becoming clear if you read scholars that it, it seems to me that the um, the best way to view stoicheia is it, it is it, it's really Paul's uh, shorthand term for the powers and authorities. Yeah, it's like a, as a metaphor. As a metaphor, it as, it's like the yeah. basic elements, the principles of the world that are being put on the world by the powers and authorities, and so. That's that's terminology. In fact, I just read a book from um, Arnold on Paul's use of the powers and authorities, and he goes into that in great detail. How stoicheia is uh, mm-hmm. was terminology used for the powers and authorities. It's that those decreating forces that set themselves up in systems and structures in the ways of the world against God. It is empire in the sense. Yes. It's what brings about empire. And so well, and says, not. Oh yeah, go ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say to 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 corroborate that statement. You know the the all of the discussion about the the Noah's Ark and all of that, and Jesus, you know, going and preaching to spirits and in prison. Uh, that that is all um, uh, coming from uh, a uh, the book of Enoch, uh, which which is. Uh, which is dealing in those terms of right the watchers and the spirits and and so that that Peter would use the author of Second Peter that's another discussion but that that this word would be used um, suggests it's along those lines that we're talking about spiritual powers and um, an unseen world so yes because that's what Enoch is all about that. Uh, uh, right, especially right. the chapters that he's drawing on. So, and as much as we've talked about the powers and authorities on the podcast in Mark and in different series of Ephesians, uh, I still feel like I want to talk more about them, but not right now. But yeah. it's so central to Paul's thinking and Peter's as well here. And so he says, you know, these these. The stoicheia, the powers and authorities, and all their their empire and anti god work will be purified, and he says by so that that's that word destroyed from the flood. It's like it's it, it will be purged, it will be judged, it will be purified, and then he says, well, how by fire? Now we could imagine like some sort of global conflagration that burns up the whole earth. But I, I think what he's referring to here is the presence of God. And so if we look at uh, Exodus 24, listen to this language, to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. In Deuteronomy 4, 24, it says, for the Lord your God, is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And we see that idea in Hebrews 12, 29, that God is a consuming fire. So this is language. It's actually in a very different sort of approach. It's very similar to what Paul was saying. It's a reference to the presence of God. And then in Peter, he says, the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare, but that a lot of translations now have recognized that rather than being laid bare, better terms for that idea in Greek are disclosed or found out. They'll be exposed. So the thinking of the powers and authorities will be exposed by God's consuming presence. And so, uh, again, what we see in Peter is a similar idea that the heavens will move forward with a roar, the principles of the world will be purged by the presence of the consuming fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be exposed. Since everything will be purged in this way, says Peter, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And I think it's, this is the last thing I'll say here, Jason. I think it's interesting, too, that he says in verses 15 and 16, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. 
But where does mm-hmm. Paul talk about the world being burned up and thrown away and, you know, remade somehow? And by the way, you mentioned new heavens and new earth. The, the word new there is renewed or restored, not new in completely materially and physically new. So in other words, Paul didn't talk about this stuff. Peter says, I'm talking about the same kind of stuff that Paul talks about. Uh, and, and Paul talks about, like we just said, the presence of God coming back to dwell with his people. And Peter uses this very Jewish language to say, this is what God is going to do. His presence will fill the earth and he will stand against the powers and authorities. He will wipe away those principles and systems of the world and he'll expose them for what they are in the new creation. Yeah, and in the verse 13, um, the Nestle Alan, like the the text critical edition of the Greek New Testament, shows verse 13 as a quotation from the Septuagint of Isaiah 65. Wherein he says this exact thing, and I, I, there shall be a new heavens and a new earth, um, and it's and even there, it's it's um, it's a reference to a reembodied um, life after exile and beyond. I think Isaiah is actually referring to what Revelation is referring to ultimately, um, substantively. That's the goal: is this renewed cosmos. Um, but it's but it but it is it is embodied. This is this is not a break with everything we've been reading in the in the Bible this far. Um, right. So so to imagine that this passage gives us a, a way to just say, well, let's get out there with our you know our bullhorn and tell people to repent because it's all going to burn up and our souls are going to leave. And to imagine that's all all it means to live a holy life. Is to really miss the the rich images here of a holy life, right? And I, what Peter actually says here is because you know that God will confront empire right. and the powers and authorities and the principles of the world, He will stand against it. Live your lives now. Right. Live in your view life of that. Right. Anticipate right. that. Right, which is what Paul says in places like Romans 13, at the end of chapter 13, like, hey, the the day is coming, so even though it's the middle of the night, live like you're already in the day, in anticipation of what the new creation will be like. And so we actually have Peter, Paul, John describing the same idea, that God will stand against empire that seems so big now and you seem so small. But he will stand against it. He will vindicate his people. We will be in his presence. We should live lives that anticipate that now and show people the justice and wholeness of that now. They use very different means to get there, very different words, but all three writers are using the same ideas. Right. They're aiming at the same. Yeah, the rhetoric's different, but they're aiming at the same goal, which is this faithful life of hope. Uh, evidenced yes. by good works, uh, a life of holiness. You know, it's the just amazing. To, it, it, it's it's amazing to me that, um, you know, a few short passages like First Thessalonians chapter four and Second Peter chapter two. You know, you, you've you've kind of pointed to the only places where you know, people have really been able to argue for a rapture. And I, and I think we hopefully demonstrated that you can't do that. It doesn't work. Um, but isn't it amazing how just a few, just two little passages can cause us, uh, you know, to, to miss so much, uh, like the rest of, of the Bible. We just, we it's like we we don't really think about the tension that it creates to believe that these passages are talking about the rapture we don't it doesn't occur to us 
Um, and of course, there are forces that act upon us that cause us to read these two passages like that. Um, but it's just, it's astounding how a misreading of a couple of passages can do so much damage and create so much misunderstanding. Well said. And I think that is correct. And I, I think you see that in, in a lot of places. I coined the term way back, and I don't know if other people have used it, but I, I use this term, a paradigm heresy, where you, you yeah. get one idea in your mind, and it kind of becomes the foundation, and it gets you locked in. You and can filter you everything accept, through it. You filter everything through the color of those glasses. Isn't that wild? And and it's oftentimes one verse, one concept, right. one A misunderstanding idea. of one verse, too. Not just yes. one verse, but a misread of one verse. A misread. And it, yeah. And I've seen that in interacting with Jehovah's Witnesses, yeah. with Black Hebrew Israelites, yeah. and you could go on and on, you know, with, with people who say we have to follow the law as, you know, as new covenant people. And over and over and over again, you see that slight misread, and then it gets filtered through everything else and it has right. huge implications right let, let me say one more thing it, and t- tell me if this is your experience but uh over the years i think we i've mentioned this before probably on our podcast but over the years when i've you know made a feeble attempt to talk about resurrection and to to teach about it um uh you know i i i will often get from people listening to me Oh, that was really exciting. You know, what a surprise. I didn't see, you know, any of that. But, you know, I guess in the end, you know, it's all going to, it's not going to matter. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out when we get there. And it's almost like we, we think that it doesn't matter how we think about hope. And I I don't like the term afterlife because that really, I think messes us up, but just hope, I guess, what, what we imagine is yeah. going to happen. Um, and, you know, this is not like a disputable matter or something. Like, you go ahead and think about rapture and I'll believe in resurrection. Now, this has destructive consequences. This, this is, um, you know, at an earlier period in the, in the life of the church, we might have called this like a heresy. It's a false teaching. Um, it's not the sound doctrine that I think Paul advocates for, um, you know, in the, like in the pastoral letters. This is a teaching that leads us astray from the thing God is looking for uh, from his yeah. people to, to something that is really, I think, really toxic. Um, so I, I, I kind of want to plant my flag and say, look, this isn't just like you believe, you believe rapture, I'll believe resurrection or something. Like, I, I'm not okay with that. How about you? I mean, is that too firm? Like, is well, this this I, is something that I feel like we we need to speak out against no, at th- some level. I think you're you're right in in many respects. Uh, I I agree. I think um, you know, for instance, and you know this well. We've talked about this in the past. The early church was very clear: if you didn't believe in physical resurrection, then they would say. There's actually that one quote. I want to say it's Justin Murr off the top of my head where he says, if people don't believe in the physical resurrection of the body, then don't imagine they are Christians. And they were pretty uh, straightforward on the idea that that the idea of floating off in a non-bodily state for the rest of eternity was not the, the teaching of Christ, that that, that, that had... Um, huge impact and implications for how we live our life now, how we understood uh, our role, our vocation as Christians. And then I I think you're right. I I think there are, you know, there is a danger, of course, in being too dogmatic, even for us, the way we read Revelation. There, There are ways that we can disagree, and there's mysteries there, and there's things that I don't understand, and none of us probably ever will fully understand definitively. 
But I think you are right that this is one of those areas where it clearly becomes so dangerous that it's it's one of the reasons I keep speaking about it on this podcast. Um, It it has it has it's it's bad medicine, man. It's yeah, poisonous. Well, and and I have a pretty high tolerance for you know, like I I mean, agree. I, I don't I don't like plant my flag on every you know single thing Christians. Need I'm to with you. I try to believe. do it not very often, but the, this, th- is this is one, one that I've just it's it's one of those things where it's like it doesn't seem like it's a big deal, but it's kind of like you know you've heard the old metaphor of like a what is it like the what is the what do they use when they like a ship or something? But if you're one degree off or whatever on a compass yeah. over a long period of time you end up way far from your distance, you know? And I think yeah. this is one of those situations where a, uh, when the, the rapture conditions our imagination, of the Christian hope, and then substitute, you know, or corresponding uh, to that, the, the Christian life, it's like a tick off and you might not notice it immediately, but over the long haul, it just shapes us toward like we were talking about earlier, nationalism, <laughs> you know, um, arrogance, uh, but mostly just leaving the needy uh, neglected in favor of a fire insurance gospel. Well, that's it. And we've seen it actually has pretty huge implications. It has shifted the way the church thinks about and approaches evangelism. It, it has shifted the way the church has approached the oppressed and justice and those in need it has shifted our geopolitical worldview. So it 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 has big implications. It's small yeah. little small yeah. big implication. That's good. That's good. Well, th- this is a I, I hope this conversation is fruitful and provocative at some level for people because I think this is this is a big one. Thanks, Jason. Let's call it a show there. Um, We'll pick up next time. I think Gianna will be back with us. Thanks for joining us. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, hit us up at, uh, what is our Gmail? It's the Icon Podcast. Icon at Gmail or something? I almost went way back and said the All Things to All People podcast at Gmail. Oh, wow. That's right. Don't write to that. Uh, I do not check that email anymore. But write us at the Icon Icon Podcast, not the, Icon Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time.